0: Amen. Thank you, worship team. This morning we are going to look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 23. This will be our last sermon in a series that's been going on for a little while. We started with Elijah and looked at several of his stories. Uh, And then at Easter we took a short break and we picked back up with the ascension of Elijah and the taking over of the ministry by Elisha, and that's where we are. And we read these Old Testament stories and I think sometimes we have a very difficult time appropriating them for the present. I'm reminded of being in Sunday school and the teacher often using a flannel graph, which was very helpful, where you have a piece of flannel on a board and little characters are stuck on there and the teacher explains them but somehow i think spiritually we get stuck there we leave sunday school class go back to the regular world and all we have in mind are these little fanelgraph paper characters yet god is giving us in these stories a picture of reality like right now reality and so often i think our unbelief in these stories isn't because of how far away they are but because of how strange they are to those of us as we live in this natural world we it's hard to imagine these miracles that are happening. And so in some ways, Christians, we are living in a delusion. I'm gonna be honest and I'm with you. The delusion is we say we believe this stuff, but it doesn't break into our daily lives. And the goal this morning will be to look at this amazing story from 2 Kings and pray that just a little more of that reality would break in to how we live out our daily lives as Christians. The backdrop to this story is um, Elisha is a prophet of Israel. Israel is not yet taken into exile, but it's getting closer and closer. Israel's the northern of the divided kingdom. And Elisha at this point has the king's ear. That is, the is- Israel's king listens to the prophet at this point in our history. And what we're gonna see is the king of Syria plans these attacks. And somehow when they show up, Israel's aware of what's going on because of Elisha and his ministry, and Syria doesn't like that. And so we're going to see this story play out. So let's read together, starting in verse 8 of chapter 6. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the men of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called to his servants and said, Will you not show me who is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord. O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel, Of Israel, the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night, and they surrounded the city. When the servant of the man, that's Elisha of God, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed, To the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away And they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you for stories like this one that remind us of our reality now. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to work on our hearts, working in faith. That we would believe that though we can't see the supernatural that we would nevertheless live our lives and believe it is truly there for your glory. Amen. I remember as a young person uh, being fascinated by Helen Keller. I don't know if young people know who Helen Keller was, but in our generation, I think she died in 1968. So in the early 70s and 80s, she was still very famous. There was also a pretty popular movie called The Miracle Worker. Helen Keller is a woman who was born, she was born healthy, but at like 18 months, an illness gave her blindness and deafness. And so her family had no idea how to raise this infant who couldn't see or hear. And she would go into rages and she would live like you would imagine, like someone who can't see or hear. And so the family hired a tutor named Ann Sullivan who came in, who was blind herself, but who could hear and was also a trained educator. And they had a relationship. And Anne, somehow, you watch the movie, you read the story, I don't know how, but somehow Helen was able to begin to write and read through Braille and communicate. She became a prolific author and, I mean, lecturer um, throughout her life. And what I, I remember one scene where there's like water and there's like one of those pumps in this movie, The Miracle Worker, and Helen just has one of her just fits of, of fear and terror and Sullivan just like hugs her and like teaches her about the water and even disciplines her in the and what it is and by the end of that scene she's kind of turned a corner about water and how to communicate it it's fascinating and the reason i bring that up is this we live in a world where you have five senses and we need them to thrive in this world right so for helen to have been born with three senses is going to make her not be normal right Christians and humans are born into a supernatural world. And we have five senses, but we can't see the supernatural. And what God is saying all through the Bible is the unbeliever never grasps the fact that there's an unseen realm that you need. But the Christian, the Bible believing Christian, would come and say, We now do believe. But so often I think we're like this servant of Elisha where we cognitively get the idea that Elisha is a prophet and he, he knows things that we don't grasp. But when fear comes, when our cages are rattled, we revert back into the natural self and we, we get upset and we get fearful. Francis Schaeffer, uh, who very much helped me in this sermon, um, is writing the, the book True Spirituality, has this quote, and Dan's gonna put it on the board, he says, if I am not a Bible believing Christian in the fullest sense, simply by believing the right doctrines, but as I live in the practice in the supernatural world. Um, the idea then is this. And he goes on to say, you can be a Christian and you're going to heaven. He's not talking about your salvation, but he's saying you're not appropriating the reality of the gospel and all the truths that we have in Scripture if we're not engaging this world as, it, as though it were supernatural. So my goal this morning as we look at this passage is to regain our belief in the supernatural. Just three simple points. It exists, it has a purpose, and there is power. Those three points. It exists, there's a purpose to it, and it has power. So let's start with the fact that it exists. In our passage, I think the first interesting note is we find that the king of Syria realizes Israel is getting information and he assumes there's a mole, there's someone in his kingdom that's telling the secrets. But he finds out that the information is getting to Israel by way of Elisha, a prophet. So right there we have the insertion of the supernatural. There's a person named Elisha and somehow he's getting this information we aren't told even from the king's bedroom. That is the most private meetings between him and his guards. That is what that language means. No matter how secret and how small that group is, those plans get out. But the bigger place we see the uh, supernatural is with this servant, right? The servant walks out one morning, sees this army of Syria. I mean, I'm sure the king just sent everybody. We're going to take out Elisha, which is interesting because don't you think Elisha would know you're coming? So it just shows a little bit of the pride of the king. Like, This is the guy who knows what you're doing. But nonetheless, Syria moves up. I'm sure the the army sees nobody that they're going to have to fight to go get Elisha. They're pretty excited. This servant walks out. I don't know. Maybe he's going to make a little fire, just start his morning routine, wiping the sleep from his eyes. And he's panicked. And he runs in and Elisha is very calm and says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And he comes out and he sees, and what he sees, the scriptures tell us, are horses, chariots. I don't, like, I don't understand this, right? I don't understand, like, people ask, do dogs go to heaven? Well, there's horses. So I don't know how this works, but you have, like, armies and, and everything just sitting right there that exists in that moment, Right? And so the point is, I think, of this passage is not to say primarily that every now and then the supernatural is there, but rather what Elisha is trying to get his servant to see is that it's always there. Like at every moment, the supernatural exists. It's not just occasionally. All right? Paul says in the New Testament, we see, though we see dimly now, one day we will see fully. We live in a world where we have necessarily, because of the fall, a veil. And so as Christians, like Helen Keller, we're not going to get magic sight until heaven. We long for that day. But what the Bible promises us is we, like Helen Keller, can begin to learn about the supernatural world just with our our limited senses, but we can begin to read Scripture and through the Spirit recognize this world exists um, and that it's always there. There's a place in Luke, and we've talked about this sermon, this, uh, ser- this truth of this passage a lot of times lately, the road to Emmaus. Remember, Jesus has risen, and uh, his disciples are disheveled, and there's two who probably in the evening are walking from Jerusalem to their town, wherever they're staying, and lo and behold, Jesus is with them. Remember the story of Emmaus. And then they sit down, they break bread, they eat, and then he's gone. And the English says he vanished from their sight. And every time I've read that, I assumed he physically left. Vanished, yes, so supernaturally, but that his body was also sort of taken off, like he appears somewhere else. And that very well may be what happened. But the actual Greek, it's an adverb, it's an adjective of and he became invisible. The verb is the verb to become. This passive, like he became invisible to their sight. And it was actually Schaefer who pointed this out. It's not that he's gone. Rather, it's that their eyes were open for just a short while to see the supernatural. And then their eyes went back and he became invisible to their sight. So the supernatural is always present. Schaefer goes on to use this illustration of chairs that I'm going to kind of tweak. He talks about different chairs. The one chair is the naturalist chair. That's the chair where you are, if you are a person who believes we live in a closed system, everything's explainable, there's nothing that happens outside of this system, it's natural. And everything we would ever want to know is in that system. And that is the truth of our age. We believe that as a culture. And Christians struggle with sort of believing that and falling into that chair. I have a chair at home I bought. In Colorado, it's an antique-ish chair. And it came, it's one of those like chairs that come out of a law office, like wooden, like I think a jury or a juror may have said in it, you know, that kind of a chair. It's heavy oak and it looks really appealing and you sit in it and it's ergonomically fine for about seven minutes. And then it starts to kind of just rub you wrong. And it's gone around different places in our house because people think it looks cool, but then eventually it's like, that's not comfortable. That's the natural chair. It looks great it's interesting, it's crafted from, from oak and whatever, but when you sit in it, it just gets uncomfortable. Now I'm going to add a chair. That's the natural chair. I'm going to add the super chair. The super chair is fluffy and looks like one of those fold, you know those old chairs that, float, that fold into a bed and you fold them back into a, like a real fluffy kitty chair, you know, for children And it looks great and you're getting so sore from this natural chair, you go plop into that one and you're laid out flat, like you're on the ground. That's the super chair. A lot of people think supernatural is that chair. It's, I hate the wooden one, I wanna get rid of it. I wanna go believe that anything's possible, everything's possible, there's fairies, there's whatever. And you see this in like Eastern religions often, like this world doesn't exist, it's imaginary. You sort of see this with like Jim Carrey has made these quotes like he's kind of got off the deep end. So we aren't resisting that there's a natural world, nor do we want to sit in the chair that says there's only a natural world. What the Bible teaches, and we're going to continue to process, is there is a third way, a supernatural chair that ex- that includes the natural realm. Okay? It doesn't, ex- it doesn't ignore the nat- natural world, but it doesn't also say that, that, that the natural world is the only possible explanation for everything. So it exists. That's point number one. Point number two, it doesn't just exist, but it has a purpose. The supernatural world has this purpose. And the purpose is to restore order. The reason we even have these distinctions is because of the fall. There's a problem. And part of the fall, uh, is that we can't see heaven. We can't see the supernatural. Mankind has been inflicted with a type of blindness. And, and we need natural. It's not so much that that's weird. It's that we're messed up. And we need correcting. And so when we see the supernatural break in in the Bible, it's always with a purpose. So in our passage, what's the purpose? The purpose in our passage is to, to fight, to save, to battle. Right, so here's this servant of Elisha, who sees this Syrian army, and God, Elisha doesn't just show him an angel playing solitaire or you know hanging out. Wow, there's angels! I didn't realize that. He shows them. He shows the servant an army, and it's so powerful and it's so large that the servant, though it's not exactly explicitly written in our passage, is able to probably find courage. And know that they actually are going to be okay. And we see this reality, by the way, in Ephesians 6. I'm going to turn us to Ephesians 6. Paul, picking up on this idea of the supernatural, says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What stands out for me in Paul's writing is that we wrestle. And he assumes this. He doesn't say Christians wrestle with the spiritual realm and unbelieving Christians that are Christians that aren't living within the supernatural construct or non-Christians just don't wrestle. They just hang out. That's not what he says. We all wrestle. Life is wrestling. Life is constantly engaging what creates fear. Everybody's doing it. So Paul is saying, guys, Let's realize before you just start engaging the natural realm, as if that's going to solve all of your problems, understand what you're really wrestling with is the supernatural existence. It's a far greater battle. Schaefer talks about um, how it's the Bible-believing Christian who believes in this that should be able to go to war better. I, I, I think so often, in our, if you think about it, just the way our culture is structured, the people who think they have the best battling are the people that are at the front lines of business. They're doing the big business stuff and, or the front lines of medicine or the front lines of politics or financial, or whatever their sphere of influence, they're the, they're the warriors and the Christians are sort of, we're just kind of back here with our flannel graph and our little Bible trying to get back to worship. That's not the Bible's model at all. In fact, what Schaefer goes on to say is the, the, if you're not engaging the battle within the supernatural, you're like a little boy at home with your little green army man. You feel like you're in battle, but you have zero power. The, the, what, the battle is being waged in the supernatural, the battle is being waged in. in in the heavenlies as well as in the physical, in this supernatural realm. And the question for us as Christians is are we in that battle? Because we are in a battle. We are wrestling in our hearts with something at all times. But are we doing so where the Lord that is in the scriptures is breaking in the, the, the God Elisha prays to has already brought in his army? Do you believe that? Is that part of your picture So practically speaking, are you at all aware of the supernatural? And let me be more specific. Are you aware of the supernatural at the places where you're afraid? Where are you afraid? What what places in your life? Notice in our passage, it's not just he's out for a walk and Elisha thinks, hey, I'll show him and pray that he'll see the host. It's at his point of panic. It's at the panic point and fear moment that Elisha's servant comes to Elisha and cries out, help, what are we gonna do? And that's where Elisha prays that the Lord would open his eyes. So practically speaking, application wise, it's not just that we drive down the road and go, I wonder if there's angels right over there or right over here, right in the car. That's fine. You can become consumed by that too much. Even Hebrews tells us in chapter one, don't become consumed by that. Rather, it's saying when you are at places of fear, as you look at the problems in our world, where is your understanding of God's supernatural universe? And are you finding any comfort in it? So that's the, that's the, that's the, um, the purpose of, of seeing, the purpose of resting in the supernatural. Point two is to recognize at our places of fear, It is there to help us battle. Point three is then the power. This is our last point. Where is the power in the supernatural? Um, I want you to hear about what happens at the end of our story, which is just, it's kind of mind-boggling. I'm just going to tell you the story. Um, Here we are with this Syrian army who's ready to kill and capture or do whatever to Elisha and drag him off to Syria. And even though the Lord's army is present, the prayer of Elisha is for blindness on the Syrians. So the Syrian army, commentators are debating what does it mean that they're blind? Is it full blindness, whatever? Here's the deal. They can't see and they need to be led to, back to Israel, to Samaria, which is where Israel's king was at the time. And, and they're brought in, and I picture them probably in some ways restrained. And so when they regain sight... They realize we've had it, like we're done, we're toast. And this type of history play, I mean, you're not gonna walk into the enemy camp having threatened them and live. And so the king of Israel rightly said, is like, I'm gonna take him out, right? Elisha, I'm gonna kill him, right? And Elisha's like, no, we're gonna feed him. We're gonna feed this army who's probably hungry. We're gonna give them not only food, but wine. We're gonna, like, we're gonna bless them and we're gonna send them home. Wow, where is the power for that? Elisha has some deep sense of justice to the point that he understands the only way for true heart change for this army, the only way we're gonna really stop this fighting is if we go so far beyond the normal practices, the natural processes, and into this supernatural realm that would do something so crazy as to feed the enemy and send them home. and we see a picture of this in Isaiah 9, 6 when when we hear a prophecy about Jesus. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The power is in the fact that what is being longed for with supernatural and the natural. What's being longed for in these battles is peace. That's the point. That's the goal. That's the power. Jesus did not come to create more war. Jesus did not come to smite more people. He came to bring peace. We see this in in Matthew 26, this amazing story where Jesus and his disciples uh, are in the garden and up comes Judas Iscariot with, all the uh, soldiers to come take Jesus and take him to jail or take him into captivity. And remember what Peter does? Peter takes his sword out and like fights and cuts off an ear. And Jesus says, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. We've heard that line, live by the sword, you die by the sword. How about this translation? You live by the natural chair, you die by the natural chair. You live according to the flesh, you die according to the flesh. This is not to suggest as a Christian, if you have Christ, you won't go to heaven when you sin because you live out the natural chair. It's to suggest it's always a faulty model. Peter, who cut the ear off, clearly was a believer and clearly would go to heaven, but in that moment, His only mindset was we are in a natural setting and I have to take up my sword and protect my Jesus. But listen to what Jesus says next. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, do you not realize, like the aid of Elisha, I, as this true Elisha, could call 12 legions of angels to wipe out Rome in five seconds? I can do that. That's not why we're here. We are here for victory. We are here for peace. And what he knew, Jesus realized, and what the the disciples came to realize was Jesus would need to be nailed to a cross in order for that victory to happen. I think Jesus is the perfect picture of the supernatural breaking in. At his birth, all through his life, and all through his ministry, as, as those of us who are reading his scriptures and trying to understand who he is, he's constantly both fully man, fully natural, and yet fully supernatural, fully God, and we can't make sense of it, yet it's true. And at his death, that is what even the local that's what the centurions understood the the veil rips the earthquake happens they see this man is truly the son of god and we worship him and follow him and the question is are we living out of that reality there's a place in colossians 2 where paul says this in verse 13 Uh, Verse chapter 2, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image. I'm at the wrong verse, everybody. You wondering what I'm reading? Some of you aren't reading wondering. I'm at chapter 1. Can you cut that? Can we go back? Take it live. Okay. Take it live. Okay. I actually have a little ink dot by the verse I meant to read. Colossians 2 verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh and God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He nailed that to the cross. Listen to verse 15. So here's the point of this passage. I know I kind of got off. I've confused you you're wondering what we're talking about. Here's how the supernatural has broken in in Jesus and rescued all of us out of the natural chair with its laws and its rules and its desire to condemn. And he's put us in this supernatural place. Listen to verse 15 of chapter 2. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them and himself. What Jesus has done, if you are in Christ, is he has transitioned us out of this natural chair into the supernatural chair where we live, knowing there's a physical universe. There's, There's a virus, there's pains, there's hurts, there's death. But there's more. We are now in a new relationship to the God of the universe who exists, who is real, who rules and reigns. We are now free in him. Our sins have been forgiven. They've been nailed to the cross So now we can live as one outside of that natural universe in a supernatural sense. That's our hope. Does that mean that you have nothing to be fearful of? No. And yes. So here's the application. The application, I don't always give real specific ones. Very specific. What do we do with all these truths? We apply Philippians 4.6. Are you anxious? Turn to Christ, right? He will guard your heart, your mind. Here's how we're going to do it. This week and even today, I would like you to notice your areas of fear. And how will you notice them? Where are you pulling out your sword? Where are you joining Peter with the sword? Sarcasm, checking the stock prices. There's a million ways we are pulling out the sword of protection against the natural problems of our world. And what we're doing when we pull out that sword is we're admitting, I'm afraid. Jesus, I'm afraid. Peter is essentially saying with his personality, I'm afraid. This is not my plan. This is not the way it was going to go down. So he pulls out his sword. The young man with Elisha is afraid. He's in a panic. Where are you afraid? So you start with where are you pulling out your swords? And then secondly, identify what fears do I have? Where am I seeing my fear? Then thirdly, you take that real fear and you go to the scripture and you look at the promises and you say, Lord, I believe these truths, help my unbelief. What's the unbelief? I still live out of these fears, but I want you to know in Mark nine, when the man says, I believe, help my unbelief, he doesn't then just check out. He acts on that belief. Fourth, so number one, where am I pulling out my sword? Number two, what's the fear underlying it? Three, what's the promises of Scripture that say God is with me and His supernatural presence is going to take care of us and take care of you? Fourthly, then claim and live out of those promises by faith. Take steps against that fear. Let's not act as orphans. Let's act as Christians boldly. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to start out with these very close-to-home particular fears we have, but it will begin to radiate through our lives, and we will begin to love others and share it with them. And I think the church, as the bride of Christ, is the supernatural body, and it's Christ's blessing, that vine, that can bring healing to our world. Let's claim that in Christ. Amen. Jesus, we praise you that at your birth and that your life here, Lord, that the supernatural broke in. Lord, you are a physical human being, 100% natural. You took on a natural, fully human body. But Lord, also, and we can't get our minds around this, you are always God, 100% deity. And so Lord, in your life, you took that on, that you might take our sin and our brokenness and you might transition us from a natural chair that's wooden and stale and causing sores and put us into the chair of the supernatural that we are redeemed sons and daughters. We now have a citizenship that is in heaven. Lord, that doesn't make us less natural. That makes us supernatural. That means we have a future in heaven. But Lord, forgive us that so often we forget that, we separate that, we live in a delusion that this world is all there is. We need healing. We need your spirit to give us peace and comfort. Help us to identify those areas where we're ignoring that reality. Teach us to cry out to you like Elisha's servant did and teach us to trust your promises